This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. magazine, Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg said, it's a consequence of the experience of science that as you learn more and more about the universe, you find you can understand more and more without any reference to supernatural interventions, so you lose interest in that possibility. Most scientists I know don't care enough about religion even to call themselves atheists. And that I think is one of the greatest things about science that it has made it possible for people not to be religious. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. What is the job of science? And should we judge the past by the standards of the present? On this week's show, Stephen Weinberg talks moral sense, the fundamental laws of nature, and the possibility of a constructive dialogue between science and religion. I face death with the conviction that there will be nothing afterwards, that I will simply cease to exist. My consciousness will come to an end. Uh, I am not happy about this. Um, People throughout the ages, philosophers have tried to reconcile us to this, saying that if your consciousness comes to an end, then you're past all suffering, and there's nothing to lament. Well, what I lament is just that, that I will have no more consciousness, that there will be nothing to worry about. As Philip Larkin, the poet, said, nothing to love or link with. Um, I think that's terrible. I'm very unhappy about it. Uh, There's nothing I can do about it except try to stay alive as long as I can and perhaps do some writing that may survive for a while after I'm dead. And is the past a foreign country? British actress and writer Sheila Hancock author of the award-winning memoir, The Two of Us, talks candidly about the alienation of grief and the pleasures of falling in love with two larger-than-life men. This is a show about passion and science, frustration and ego, pushing the boundaries and then letting go. But first, Stephen Weinberg and his quest for truth. holds the Chair of Science at the University of Texas in Austin. He has taught at Columbia, Berkeley, MIT and Harvard, where from 1973 to 1982 he was the Higgins Professor of Physics. Today Stephen is celebrated as the world's most authoritative proponent of the idea that physics is hurtling towards a final theory. Among scientists, Weinberg ranks as an intellectual icon, some say even above British physicist Stephen Hawkins. Now, Stephen has been honoured with numerous awards, including the Nobel Prize in Physics, the National Medal of Science and the Lewis Thomas Prize for the Scientist as Poet. Stephen is a member of the National Academy of Science, the Royal Society of London, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. 
Stephen says the effort to understand the universe is one of the very few things that lifts human life a little bit above the level of farce and gives it some of the grace of tragedy. He believes this is one of the great social functions of science, to free people from superstition. He says science can help people grow up as individuals. Stephen's books include The First Three Minutes, A Modern View of the Origins of the Universe, Dreams of a Final Theory, The Scientist's Search for the Ultimate Laws of Nature, and The Quantum Theory of Fields, Volume 1 and 2. While Stephen's latest book, To Explain the World, The Discovery of Modern Science, has just hit the bookshops and is one vast and stimulating journey through humankind's scientific coming of age. Well, earlier this month, I got a hold of Stephen at his home in Austin in Texas and had a great conversation. He's an extraordinary man with a very generous mind. I asked Stephen, do we need to fully explain the world or should we just sit with the mystery of it all? I think that uh, people from earliest times have wanted to explain the world. Nature presents such complications, uh, often very dramatic things like thunderstorms and earthquakes and the sun and moon and stars uh, in the sky. Uh, I think it must have been irresistible uh, for many people, even before history, to want to explain this all. And we know, once we begin to have a historical record, uh, we know that uh, serious thinkers were at work trying to explain the world. Science uh, will never explain absolutely everything, partly because many things are, are just too complicated. I don't think we will ever explain precisely why the continents have the shapes they have, although we can get a, a rough idea from our theories of continental drift. Uh, we will never explain precisely why evolution on Earth has taken the form it has. It was all in the past. We can't go back and follow each uh, early mammal mating with another mammal to see uh, why some uh, offspring survived and some didn't. Of course, there'll be many things that will always be beyond our understanding. What we seek is not to understand everything, but to understand the principles that govern everything, the laws of nature. And we've gone a long way uh, in that direction. So many things which would have seemed, in fact, I'm sure did seem mysterious to our predecessors are now perfectly clear to us. That's not to say that we've we have the fundamental laws of nature in our possession. We still don't know what they are, but the laws that we work with that correctly account for virtually everything we can do in our laboratories, those laws, even though interim laws, temporary laws, are good approximations, we're sure, to the fundamental laws of nature. And we're, we're getting there. We're getting closer and closer. Now, you cover some great personalities in history, some great scientists, some great philosophers. And before we get to people like Thales, I'd like to ask you, do you think it's fair, Stephen, to judge the past by the standards of the present? Because that's what you seem to be doing in your book. I think that for many purposes, uh, trying to understand what it was like, for example, to be a philosopher in uh, Miletus in the year 500 BC, it isn't important to judge past by the standards of the present. We, we should try to get into the spirit of those times rather than our times. But there is a question, how did we go from an early philosopher like Thales 
to the scientific revolution, whose climax was the work of Isaac Newton, and then on to the present. How did we go that enormous intellectual distance? What was there in the thought of early Greek philosophers, for example, that helped us on this road? And what was it that held us back? And that is the kind of question for which we can't help judging the work of the past by the standards of the present. I don't mean that we try to judge was Thales an idiot or a brilliant genius. That's not really an interesting question. As far as I can tell, the names that have survived are all the names of very intelligent people. But they're often people whose work did not advance the cause of science, and in many cases held it back. And we need to understand that in order to understand how we've gotten where we are now and what we also like to understand is where we may be going. But the synergy in your book to explain the world, the discovery of modern science, is that they were all in relationship. They were all searching for the truth, whether they were scientists, whether they were theologians, philosophers, astronomers. They were all looking for truth. But they had very different ideas from each other as to what shape that truth might take. I don't mean what precise facts govern the world, but I mean, what sort of laws, what sort of uh, description of the world, what sort of explanation of the world is possible? They differ tremendously from each other and from us. And it's that that I tried really to follow. But what I'm really interested in is how did they discover what kinds of things can be discovered and what the shape of the explanations would be. I mean, for example, Aristotle uh, thought that uh, the world was governed by laws that could be learned by a casual observation of nature, uh, together with a good deal of logical analysis, uh, that it wasn't necessary to confirm those laws by careful quantitative observation and that uh, nature just had better obey the laws that Aristotle had guessed at by really uh, not deep observation. Plato, on the other hand, thought that the laws of nature could be found by pure reason in the same way that the laws of geometry uh, can be found by pure reason. Uh, For example, Plato, in talking about astronomy, thought that it really wasn't quite necessary to look at the sky, that... uh, Looking at the sky for an astronomer is like looking at a diagram for a mathematician studying geometry. They may help the understanding. They may provide a kind of mental crutch. But the truths of astronomy, just like the truths of geometry, can be obtained by pure reason uh, without observation at all. They differed profoundly from each other. And, of course, from the point of view of a present scientist, they were both wrong. How critical was Copernicus' uh, contribution to modern science? Uh, He really was the beginning of the scientific revolution. I think the great achievement of the scientific revolution was to develop a theory of motion and gravity, uh, Newton's theory, that explained the behaviour of the planets and the sun and the moon and the earth in the solar system. Uh, Well, if you didn't know that the planets are going around the sun, including the Earth going around the sun, then and if you uh, follow the Ptolemaic idea that the uh, 
sun and the planets all go around the Earth. It's going to be very hard to develop any kind of physical theory that would explain that. So what Copernicus did in in moving the still point of the solar system from the Earth to the sun was absolutely crucial. I think someone else would have done it. In fact, even in ancient times, there were hints that some astronomers like in particular, Aristarchus already had that idea, although it was largely lost. Someone else would have come along with that idea, but it was Copernicus who did. Stephen, do you think physics can give us a better explanation of the world than religion? Well, uh, religious explanation of the natural world has not done very well. That is, if there was a plague and you explain it as a punishment by God of... Uh, a sinful nation. Experience has shown that although that can't be ruled out, it may be true, it doesn't help very much in curing the plague. That what you need in order to cure disease is a scientific understanding of uh, bacteria and viruses and, and other things like that and what you can do about them. I think as if you say the aim is to explain the natural world, the history of human civilization has been one of a continual retreat of religion and advance of science. And today, among uh, many branches of Christianity, for example, uh, it's accepted that uh, it is not the job of religion to explain the natural world. Um, For example, the Vatican has acknowledged that the church in the 17th century was wrong to think that Holy Scripture could provide an understanding of the planets and the motions of the earth and the sun, Uh, and it was wrong to punish Galileo because of his scientific explanation uh, seemed to go against religious authority. I think now many religious people would say that it's not a uh, job of religion to explain the world. In fact, uh, Galileo said this beautifully in his famous letter to to Christina. Uh, He said that it's not the job of Scripture to tell us how the heavens go, but how to go to heaven. And uh, I think there are not many people who are uh, deeply religious who would regard their religion as a guide to understanding the natural world. That's task has largely been given up by religion. But do you not think that we need some shape or some moral shape on how we how we use the fruits of science and what we do with it? Well, I, I certainly would agree that science cannot provide moral principles. I mean, there is an unbridgeable gulf between statements about what is and statements about what ought to be, what one ought to do. Science may explain why people are religious, or it may not. That's a very hard thing to explain. Maybe Uh, Thomas Aquinas would have an opinion on that. Well, Thomas Aquinas uh, tried to reach a balance between Aristotle and Christianity, and in fact he did much to preserve the uh, teaching of philosophy in the Middle Ages of a naturalistic sort. The incapacity of religious teaching to explain the natural world was certainly not recognized. When I say the natural world, I mean the world that's accessible to observation. I suppose what you mean there is the physical evidence, the physical reality, how we, you know... That's a pretty good way of saying 
it. I don't mean, however, that science can tell us how we ought to behave. Some of us take that from religious teaching. Others, like myself, don't. I, I think, uh, on balance, I live a pretty uh, moral life. That sense of morality doesn't come from religious teaching. Uh, religion has often served as a source of uh, guidance that we would today regard as terribly immoral, uh, the punishment of heretics. But is it that we have failed to have a constructive dialogue between science and religion? I don't know what would be the point of a dialogue between science and religion. Science deals with uh, what is, what can be observed. It does not... uh, reach conclusions about morality or about the existence of supernatural persons, God, for example. I know that you've said science has made it possible for people not to be religious. Well, in the ancient world, there were many things that seemed to require a religion as an explanation. Thunderstorms, plagues, the workings of the wonderful uh, design of living things, all these seemed to require the intervention of a punishing God or a benevolent God. And for many people, religious belief was based on this. Uh, As late as the 19th century, there were many uh, religious people, including, for example, Cardinal Manning, who left the Anglican Church and joined the Roman Church, uh, who explained that his religion was partly based on the fact that he could see no other way of understanding the wonderful properties of living things. Well, that has largely gone by us. Uh, We now understand how the wonderful properties of living things can be explained in a purely naturalistic way, uh, without any benevolent supervision by a supernatural power, uh, through evolution by natural selection, the work of Darwin and Wallace in the uh, first half of the 19th century. Now, the fact that things like the behavior and the capabilities of life can be explained in a naturalistic, unreligious way doesn't mean that religion is wrong, but it removes what historically had been one of the reasons for religion, one of the motivations for people adopting religious views. I don't say that's the only motivation. I think perhaps a more profound motivation is the fact that we all know we're going to die. And this um, sense leads many people to feel that their life will be unbearable unless they uh, believe in some sort of afterlife. So we Um, have this wonderful narrative around death and the afterlife in order to reconcile ourselves with death. Is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. That's what I mean. It's very hard uh, not to, well, it's impossible not to wish that there was a life after death. And wishing it, it's very hard not to believe that there is. Uh, I think that's probably a much more powerful motivation for religion than um, a uh, a desire to explain the natural world. And that remains with us uh, for many people. And I... I've become more mellow in recent years about religion. And what about reliable knowledge? What about reliable knowledge? Have you become mellow about that as well? I think learning about the world, learning to explain the world, is 